Father, we thank you for your blessings to us, uh, the blessing of salvation, the blessing of family in Christ, and the blessing of a country in which we are free to gather and to worship you. Uh, we pray that you would strengthen us in our pilgrim journey in this Sunday school period. In Christ's name, amen. So by, by way of recap, um, Westminster is a Puritan document. These are Puritans uh, in England that are, that are gathering together to produce this uh, biblical theology. And they're operating in a day in which the state establishes the true religion. Uh, so you've got the Church of England, uh, the Church of Scotland. Uh, the Church of Scotland just happens to be Presbyterian. The Church of England just happens to be Anglican. But the, the parallel between those two is they are the established church uh, within the country. And so Westminster is reflecting this, that it's the duty of the civil magistrate to establish and protect the true religion in his land. Now, in the American Revision in 1789, uh, the Confession doesn't really introduce the idea of the separation of church and state. That idea has already been introduced. This is a big part of the whole American experiment, is, is having an unestablished church. Actually, some of the states of so Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, had an established church. So some of the states had established churches. Others were established on religious freedom. Uh, and so the federal constitution doesn't reflect an establishmentarian principle. But um, so when the, when the Americans revised the confession, they removed a lot of the language in the original confession that uh, stated that the civil magistrate establishes the true church. However, it doesn't mean that because there we recognize that there are two kingdoms, there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of man, because we recognize the spirituality of the church. And so let me give an example, uh, just real quickly, since we do have a little bit extra time. Um, I was talking to a young lady yesterday who uh, is not, she, she did not grow up in, in Reformed theology, she's not Presbyterian, uh, and was talking with her about kind of her experience in attending church. And, you know, why did she choose one church over another church? What was it that attracted her, etc.? And so she was telling me about one church that she visited when she went to, to college. And the pastor got up and was making it very, very clear that the biblical thing for a Christian to do was to vote for Donald Trump. Uh, and actually, that, that's not that uncommon. My daughter, uh, my oldest daughter in Tampa, uh, was attending a church. It was a Reformed church. It was uh, not an OPC congregation, but it was a Presbyterian uh, congregation in Tampa. 
And in the bulletin, for the bulletin insert, they had a voter's guide uh, where it showed you all of the conservative candidates that people in the congregation should vote for. So this young lady uh, was saying that, you know, there was just something about that, something about the preacher promoting Donald Trump in the worship service that just didn't feel right to her. That just didn't, didn't sit right with her, and so she didn't go back to that church. And so, so first off, I guess, let me, let me ask the question this way. Is there anybody here that would feel comfortable, that would say, I think this would be a good thing for us to put a voter's guide uh, in the bulletin insert, or for me to make clear that uh, the Seventh Commandment, uh, no, adultery, Sixth Commandment, Sixth Commandment says, thou shalt not murder, and abortion is murder, and therefore no Christian can vote for anybody other than a candidate who is pro-life. And I'm going to let you know who the pro-life candidates are and your Christian responsibility, living out your Christian ethic, uh, is to vote for these particular pro-life candidates. Uh, would anybody have a problem with me saying that? Okay. So generally speaking, I guess, we all have a problem with, with me saying that. Oh. <laughs> Oh, to ask a question. So, for those who would say this is not a good focus for the church to have, is, is instructing people how to live out their faith in the political arena. Why would this be... Uh, why, why would this be unhealthy for the church? What, what's the reason that if you think I should not be doing voting guides... Why not? So what was your... Uh, do what? Chapter 20? So read that section. It's 22. 20, section 2. <laughs>
decided it's a matter of the state or worship. So that if she believes such doctrine or she obeys such commands out of conscience, is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. That's a great point. So, so the point is, during the Revolutionary War, when we've got this, uh, this real, it, it's a political conflict. I mean, it, it's one side is saying that Christian duty requires submission to King George V. And the other side is saying King George V has broken the law, taxation without representation, blah, blah, blah. Uh, King George V has broken the law, and therefore we have a moral duty to overthrow the tyrannical government. And so Christians were very much divided. I mean, essentially, that's why Canada is a country today. Uh, <laughs> because if you were royalist, you got chased out of Virginia and Connecticut and Maryland and you immigrated to Canada because all your neighbors saw you as the as the enemy. Um, and it was. It was very much. And, and that's one of the reasons I love doing. So when, it, when I talked with this young lady uh, about this, I brought up the Revolutionary War because it is so removed in history from us that, uh, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think the closer we are to an event the more our emotions govern rather than our, our maybe rational, uh, pure rational behavior. Um, but there were pastors, and, and so the Revolutionary War is a great example. Um, there were some pastors who preached that the cause of the colonies was the coming of the kingdom of Christ, that England or Great Britain is the dragon that is referred to. And because Great Britain is persecuting this, you know, country that was built on religious freedom and the, the city on a hill and Cotton Mather and all these, all, all this, all this vision of what America can be, uh, or what the colonies can be. Um, King George is opposed to that, therefore he's opposed to God himself. Uh, and, and so it is your Christian duty. Uh, this is a war between God and Satan. And, and King George is representing Satan uh, in this. Others, obviously, said, the scripture says, honor those in authority. And Paul says this in the context of, you know, uh, Nero. Uh, who, who's clearly a very wicked man, uh, and yet Paul says, give honor uh, to, to those in authority. And so they would be more of the loyalists. Uh, and then there, were, there was a third subset, uh, and 
the, the representative of this third subset was a Presbyterian preacher named Samuel Davies. And Samuel Davies said, as you look around at the chaos around us, it draws our eyes upwards to a kingdom that is eternal. And so recognize in the chaos, the confusion, the tumult, the war, the brother against brother, neighbor against neighbor, recognize that this is not our home. Uh, and we need to have a home that is a home of peace and, and, and perfect peace and let that guide us in our actions. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think you're bringing up the Revolutionary War as a great example because it was very confusing. Uh, there, there wasn't a one way of, of approaching this issue. But what Samuel Davies is doing, and so, so to circle back around, what, what I was saying to this young lady is the message of the pulpit needs to be absolute truth. And it needs to be the gospel. Uh, that is the message that needs to come from Christ's pulpit, is the message of you are a sinner, uh, you have a great Savior, Seize that Savior and know life here and life everlasting. Uh, the more that we, because politics is always confusing. <laughs> politics is always shades of gray. Uh, now, some of those shades may get so dark that myself, as a Christian, I could not imagine myself ever supporting uh, some particular movement. Uh, but then there are other things. So, I mean, just to better be careful. We're going <laughs> to drag this chapter out even more. Uh, I, I will finish this chapter today. Uh, but, but here's an example that I think we have a lot of confusion on, uh, or a lot of differences of opinion. And that is, should recreational marijuana be legal? And I'm guessing... If we're going to raise our hands, some are going to raise our hands, yes, that recreational marijuana should be legal, and others are going to raise our hands, no, that recreational marijuana should not be legal. Uh, and, and so it's a gray thing. I mean, there's arguments on this side. There's arguments on this side. There's, you know, prohibition, mass incarceration, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the, the disproportionate effect on minority communities. Uh, and then on the other side, the long-term psychiatric uh, consequences of, of regular marijuana use or whatever. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's gray. It's not this is God's side and this is Satan's side. Uh, we might want to articulate it that clearly, but the truth of the matter is it's not. Uh, it's a complex question, it's a complex issue, and the only thing from the pulpit that we can do faithfully is communicate the absolute truth of God's Word. And, and so that's why the confession, the American confession in particular, steps back from our engagement in the political arena. The original confession, we're all in. We are, we are citizens of the state. If somebody, uh, uh, you know, somebody commits adultery 
not only they're going to be brought up before the session, but the session is then going to refer them to the civil magistrate for prosecution. Uh, there is there is this connection. And again, <laughs> there are things that have come up to me as a minister that clearly the person is coming and telling me something that happened that broke the law. Now, as a separation of church and state, it's not, my, my responsibility is not to say, well, I'm also a police officer and I'm going to go arrest the guy. Uh, but it's not, well, this is simply a church matter, this is simply a spiritual matter, I'm not, I'm not going to speak to the legal component of it. My, the first thing out of my mouth when I hear somebody making some sort of, of, you know, somebody broke a law, the first words out of my mouth are, have you gone to the police? Uh, you know, I, I recognize the civil magistrate and its God-ordained authority. And so I do very much, as a pastor, tell people, go to the police uh, when, when the law has been broken. Uh, but it's not that I am engaged in that legal process with the police. So, so there is, it's not this clear, the two never touch. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. How do we, how do we navigate? So an example would be a state in which for a parent to spank their child is illegal. Uh, does that mean that if I understand that a parent is spanking their child, that I must go and report this to the police if I believe that they're doing it biblically? If, if I believe that, you know, they're, they're, it's not abusive, it's a spanking like the Bible, you know, calls us to do discipline, uh, discipline is painful for the moment, but it bears fruit of righteousness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, am I under an obligation to the state? And I would argue that no, I'm not. I'm not under an obligation to the state. I'm under an obligation to God. And so if this is breaking the law of God and the state, then I need to go and and let the state know. If this is breaking the law of the state but not God, then I don't think as the church I've got any duty to, you know, the, the the particular position, and, and the confession wrestled with this, the men who, who put together the confession, the particular position is called Erastianism. And Erastianism says the civil magistrate is in authority over the church. Uh, and And so, you know, with the pandemic stuff and the limitations on worship and blah, blah, blah. That were, a lot of those arguments that were being made are arguments that have been made for hundreds of years 
we fought these battles. We don't have to do it all brand new, but because we don't know theology and we don't know history, I think there was a lot of confusion. But a lot of churches immediately defaulted to Erastianism. Governor Northam said, it is illegal for us to meet in groups larger than 10 and in closer proximity than six feet apart. Uh, and, and he decreed that this was illegal. And, and he was wrong to do so. Uh, and, and so for our, you know, our, our wrestling with how to respond to this, the question was, are we Erastian? Do we believe that God has given Governor Northam the authority to instruct us how to worship? Uh, and the answer was, no, we don't. Uh, we believe that Scripture gives us a clear statement. Uh, and, and so it's interesting, the same people that would be so uncomfortable with that position here in the United States are the same ones that are waving the banners and on their knees in prayer for persecuted Christians in Eritrea, for persecuted Christians in China. Uh, they're all saying, you know, here in the States, we're going, let's pray for our brothers and sisters in China that aren't allowed to worship freely. And then we have a pandemic and we all go, oh, well, stop worshiping. Uh, that's an unchristian thing to do is to worship. Uh, and And I think it's helpful if we kind of have these principles laid out so that we can walk into it uh, prepared. But let me just close, let me, let me say this real quick, because I did want to make sure I stop this, <laughs> this chapter today, and then I'll come back. But we got like a minute left. Let me, let me uh, point out what we are to do, what the scripture calls the Christian to do in relationship to the state. And that's in section four there of 23. It is the duty of people. So here's our duty uh, that, that Scripture commands. We are to we are to pray for our rulers. We are to honor their persons. We are to pay tribute in other words, we're to pay our taxes. We are to obey their lawful commands, and we are to be subject. To their authority. We're not to obey all their commands. We're to obey their lawful commands. And again, that was the, that was the big question for us is, is this a lawful command? We decide, we determined in much prayer, much consultation. I mean, Elder Scott can tell you this was not a quick one-off conversation. This was something that we read, we prayed, we discussed. It was a lot of work that went into finally coming to a place where all of us said, okay, yeah, this is, this is what we believe is the, 
is the right thing to do. And it hinged on, is this a lawful command? Uh, is it lawful for Governor Northam to say, you're not allowed to worship? Uh, and we believe before God that it was not lawful. And what do you know? The courts agreed with us eventually. Uh, all of the mandates regarding restrictions on worship were eventually struck down, but they were unlawful from the very get-go. But in in all of this, and I, I think I think particularly, and I'll, I'll admit, I am uh, I am I, I I do not have pure clean hands in this uh, matter myself. Uh, we're to honor the people who are in authority over us. Uh, we're to honor those those rulers, and you know it might be easy to. You know, kind of low-hanging fruit to to make snide comments or to uh, be disrespectful uh, to those that God has placed in authority over us. Maybe they are terrible uh, authorities, and and the same way in terms of your parents. Uh, yeah, your parents are broken people. Your parents are messed up people, uh, and I guarantee any person can point to serious messed up components of mom and dad, uh, but God still says honor them, uh, and, and so we recognize that, that there's this principle that we are to uh, engage in, and I think particularly in our American culture, our, we, we very much have a tradition of roasting uh, those who are in authority over us, and we are called to honor them uh, for for the office that they represent. So that's uh, where our confession leaves us in terms of the positive, what we are called to do in relationship to governing authority. So, uh, are there any other questions or comments? Or if not, I can close here. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, in the same way with alcohol. Yeah, the abuse. Oh, that's true. <laughs> All right, well, let's um, let's go ahead and and close. Um, for those who are interested, there is a cake at the front celebrating uh, the ordination and installation of George Brignone as ruling elder, and pictures have already been taken with that cake, so it is now fair game. You can dive in and get your sugar high prior to worship. So let's uh, close with prayer. Father, thank you for the governing authority that you have established over us uh, with all of their imperfections, 
uh, Lord, we too are imperfect. And yet you have placed us in a country, uh, in a time in history, where we enjoy liberties that many have never enjoyed and still do not. Um, we thank you uh, for that, Father, and help us to do our part uh, to walk faithfully in, in the midst. In Christ's name, amen.